Let us turn back in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Almighty God, our Father, bless us now as we open and read and give the sense of your precious words. We thank thee for every one of them. We thank thee for the little prepositional phrases of being in Christ and in him and in whom. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, for choosing us in Christ Jesus for all those spiritual blessings that are in him in heavenly places. Help us now, Heavenly Father. Without your spirit, without your word, we know nothing. With your word, but without your spirit, we know nothing. With your spirit, but without your word, we know nothing. O Lord, combine the blessing of your spirit of revelation with the word of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of thee. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we covered earlier. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Ending that verse with God's grace and the riches of His grace, we enter into verse 8 and 9. Wherein? He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. Amen. Amen and amen. That is how far we'll go in this assembly. Wherein keeps you to The fact that true salvation and salvation by Jesus Christ is by the exceeding riches of His grace. Because verse 7 ended with the grace of God. Verse 7 included being in Christ because it says in whom we have obtained, we have a redemption through His blood. And in Christ by the grace of God, God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, God has abounded toward us, meaning that there is an overwhelming supply of God's grace and His gracious blessings upon us. Sin abounds in man's case. As I quoted Romans 5 to you earlier, when I was explaining that God gave the law of Moses to bring all of its commandments to bear on every part of your life to show the church of God of the Old Testament they were sinners and exceedingly sinful because they could not keep all those precepts. But God has abounded because His grace has abounded more than sin abounded, as Romans 5 explains to us. The purpose of the law was to show sins exceeding sinfulness. It drove men to Jesus Christ because it was a schoolmaster to show us we could not be justified by any law keeping. We would have to be justified by Christ. At break time, one of the things we considered together, some men did with me, was the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ kept all the precepts of God's law perfectly so that 
in our justification, receiving Christ's righteousness, we have perfectly kept all the precepts of that extensive set of commandments that governed all the parts of life. So from a positive standpoint, we are perfectly righteous by keeping all the precepts of God's law. From the negative standpoint, the law condemned and cursed anyone that hung on a tree. So in Galatians 3.13 it says that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law because it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree to take the negative aspect of the law and he was punished in our stead. He lived victoriously keeping the law. That was applied to us. Our sins were put on Him, and He took the curse of the law, and that was to hang on a tree. In some respects, we're doubly righteous, in that our sins have been fully paid for, in that we have the full value of His perfect righteousness and obedience. What shall we say then? Paul would ask rhetorically in Romans 6 after ending that wonderful chapter of Romans 5. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is the two-word answer to that foolish heresy? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so chapter 6 takes us from the legal work of Jesus Christ to the practical obedience that we ought to give Jesus Christ. God's grace has abounded toward us, and so it is more than sufficient, completely sufficient, to make us complete in Him, but it should not give us license to sin. Wherein He hath abounded. Now in this particular verse, the abounding toward us is not the election per se, It's not the predestination or the adoption per se. It's not the justification or sanctification per se. It tells us what it is. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. There is an aspect that we should never forget that the plan of salvation is incredibly wise and incredibly prudent. And God's infinite wisdom and infinite prudence came up with this wonderful plan of salvation that has just been revealed to us and has continued to be revealed through it to us through the pages of the epistle of Ephesians. In Proverbs chapter 8, and you need not turn there, we have the lengthiest personification of wisdom given in the Bible and given in the book of Proverbs. All 36 verses of Proverbs chapter 8 are a personification of wisdom as Lady Wisdom. We like this twelfth verse. I, Wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. I, Wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Wisdom is the power of right judgment. And God used it in the creation of the world. Proverbs chapter 8, the third section of it, 
is a, is a list of verses describing God's use of wisdom in the different aspects of our solar system and our earth and how it works. That God used wisdom and He had wisdom from the beginning when He laid the foundations of the earth and so forth. Wisdom is the power of right judgment and God used wisdom in creation as Proverbs 8 teaches. Prudence is carefully considering circumstances to identify wise solutions. In Proverbs 8.12, prudence gains knowledge of witty inventions. Necessity is the mother of invention. Prudent men look at a process, in one way of inventing, look at a process and say, that is inefficient. It can be done better, faster, cheaper, more spectacularly. God looked at things, the universe, the desire to reveal His glory, and figured out by His prudence how to do it spectacularly. He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Salvation toward us is incredibly wise and incredibly prudent. And we should be very thankful for that. Paul, in Romans chapter 11, bursts into praise in the last four verses of that chapter as he concludes 11 chapters of God's grace and especially chapter 11 and what it described about a blinded portion of elect Israel. He bursts into this praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! Exclamation point. Oh, the depth! God hath abounded. It's deeper than you can plumb. It's deeper than your anchor will reach. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Ephesians 1, verse 8, it's wisdom and prudence. In Romans chapter 11, it's wisdom and knowledge. Exclamation point. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Another exclamation point. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so ends the first 11 chapters of Romans, the doctrinal section of that book, and chapters 12 through 16 take up from that, and teach us the practical application of how we ought to live for him whose mercy saved us. And we want to think that same way. Oh, the depth! Exclamation point. When we look at Ephesians 1.8, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The wisdom of God and the prudence of God is an overwhelming thing in the design and execution of our salvation. He has abounded toward us this way. How could a very just God justify sinners? He he cannot clear the guilty. He cannot acquit the wicked. The Bible tells us both. In His Son, He is both just and justifier. Romans 3.26 Natural men despise the gospel. The Bible tells us that. They consider it foolishness. 
But the elect see God's power and God's wisdom. Right. Wisdom. Just like we have here in Ephesians 1.8. God designed salvation to cause the elect angels to marvel at its wisdom shown toward the church. That is Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. A rather obscure verse, but it is a cross-reference for the angels' desire to look into these things. God has so arranged salvation that the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that is elect angels, learn the wisdom of God by how He's treated us, the church. Because He reached past them, through them, all the way down to us, and has made us His sons. Unto which of the angels said He at any time, Thou art My Son? We're all the sons of God in Jesus Christ. Don't forget Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus Christ, God's servant, would deal very prudently. Jesus is the great wisdom of God in the plan of salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I do want you to look at this. You read it last evening. These are, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. I hope that you love it. You know, we do not pretend that when we preach we are using or we have or we should use or should have the wisdom of men. We leave it aside when we get in the pulpit and we speak of God's Word. Paul said that. Paul especially and specifically dumbed down his message so that he did not use the wisdom of this world in his preaching. And so he said in verse 1 that he didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring the testimony of God. He determined not to know anything Save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was weak. He was fearful. He was trembling when He preached. Verse 3, His speech and His preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Verse 4, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power because He wanted the faith of those people that were converted to be standing in God's power and God's Word, not in His persuasive ability. A man standing by persuasive ability isn't truly a child of God. You have a strange child in the church of God, and he's been brought there by something that tickled his ears or persuaded his mind. The only people we want here are those that God's power has worked upon their hearts and opened them so that the plain presentation of Jesus Christ crucified is a glorious message to them. And that shows the huge difference between them and natural men that consider it foolish. Verse 6, how be it? Though I don't bring any natural wisdom, though I don't bring any natural eloquence, though I don't bring the world's learning into the pulpit, how be it? We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, among God's children. We speak wisdom. Yet not the wisdom of this world. He's just, he's going back and forth to make sure that you understand that there is in the gospel great wisdom. He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. There's great wisdom and prudence in the gospel, but it's not any wisdom or prudence that the world respects, cares about, or even understands. They consider it all foolish, but we sitting in here know that in the gospel is the revelation of God's power and God's wisdom. Nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. I love this seventh verse. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Before the world began, God took counsel. It doesn't take Him very long. Okay, just don't worry about it. 
God took counsel with himself. And in his infinitely eternal mind, he came up and chose the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. He chose us in Christ, all the aspects of it, all the benefits. It would include adoption. It wouldn't just be justification so that we could end up lost in space. All the aspects before the world began of his wisdom. And it's called hidden wisdom. Who's it hidden from? The natural man. Who's it hidden from? The princes of this world. I don't care what think tanks or what great universities some politicians are chosen from. They know nothing of what we know in this room. We know the secrets of the universe. We know the secrets of God's mind. The mystery of His will. I hardly know how to pronounce the words. I am a little babe and a foolish one at that. I am a wild man by nature. But in these words, we have the wisdom of God in a mystery. It's not a mystery to us. It's a mystery to natural men. It's a mystery to men under the Old Testament. It's a mystery to us until the Lord opens our hearts that we attend unto the things that the Lord has given us. Remember Lydia in Acts 16 and verse 14. Verse 8. Oh, verse 7. We've got to go on. Verse 7. God ordained this wisdom before the world unto our glory. What, because what was he going to make us? Vessels of glory. Right. Vessels of mercy. As opposed to vessels of dishonor and vessels of wrath. Unto our glory. The wisdom and prudence of God's plan of salvation is, as Ephesians 1 tells us over and over and over again, unto the praise of His glory. But it's also unto our glory because of what He's going to give us and what He's going to do for us. It results in us being glorified as brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, that is Pilate and Herod, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have touched Him if they would have understood the glorious wisdom that there is in the gospel and in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, But as it is written, and this is a this is pulling out of the Old Testament, and Paul's applying it to what the gospel conveys to you and me. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. For our benefit, for our blessing, for our glory, for our eternal inheritance. The eye, We have never seen anything like God is going to give us that is visible. We have never heard anything like what God is going to give us into our imaginations, our wildest imaginations, we have never thought or imagined what is coming for the children of God. But as it is written, 
The princes of this world knew nothing. Because their eyes are natural, they cannot see. Their ears are natural, they cannot hear. Their minds are corrupted and are not enlightened and opened and alive and spiritual. He that is spiritual discerneth all things, judgeth all things. But the natural man discerneth not the Spirit of God. The gospel's foolishness to him. But, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. No matter how intelligent a man may be, no matter how wise a man may be, no matter how passionate a man like David might be, he has never conceived of a plan of salvation that can even approach the wisdom and prudence of God that has abounded toward us. Do you you understand this? Take the most gifted man. Take the most observant man. Take the most receptive man. Take the most passionate man. They've never concocted. They've never dreamed up. They've never written the, the script for a play or a drama anything like the plan of salvation. Because God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence in the matter of our salvation. I haven't, nobody's seen it. You can't explore it. It doesn't matter how big the telescope is or how powerful the microscope is. You're not going to see it or hear it. It comes through the gospel by the filth and off-scouring of the world, opening up the Word of God and saying, this is the truth of the universe. Amen. Right. Paul, despicable in appearance, base in appearance, rude in speech, because he chose to be. He was very educated. When he needed to sound like Tertullus before Agrippa, he sounded better than Tertullus. But he chose not to use that in preaching the gospel. Okay, so verse 9 tells us that it's a mystery. We've never seen it, we've never heard it, and we've never imagined it. But look what verse 10 teaches us. But God hath revealed them. What's the them? The things which God has prepared for them that love Him. You say, I want to know that I'm in this body of elect that you've been preaching about the last two Sundays. Do you love God? You say, well, how do I know if I love Him? If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love God? But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now if God were to write us about His deep things, could you use the word that He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence? If God wrote to us about His deep things, does it justify the use of Paul's words in Ephesians 1 that God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence? Amen, he has. Look at those verses. Aren't they wonderful? The natural man doesn't know a thing about what's coming in this universe, but that inspired disjunctive that opens up verse 10 tells us, but in opposition to their ignorance, the princes of this world, the best of this world, the graduates of Harvard and Yale, but God has revealed them unto us little babes here at 212 Standing Springs Road in Simpsonville, South Carolina. He's revealed even the deep things to us. For what thing, how can you know the things of a man except the spirit of man that's in him? 
no one really knows anyone else in this assembly because the only one that really knows you is your own spirit. Well, who knows the deep things of God? God's own spirit. So what has that spirit done? He's put it down in writing. The spirit of the Lord spake by me. And his word was in my tongue. I was the pen of a ready writer, David said in Psalm 45 and verse 1. And so we have the God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures that tell us these things. You know the secrets and the hidden wisdom of the universe. You say secret isn't in the Bible. Then you didn't use Psalm 25 last night in your meditative reading, did you? It is in the Bible. Hidden hidden wisdom. You don't think that's in the Bible? That was over there in... uh, 1 Corinthians 2, where we're at right now. You know, wisdom and prudence. You don't think that's in the Bible? On the part of God? It's in Ephesians chapter 1. It's far beyond anything men have ever considered. It is the greatest drama, and the whole universe is the stage for it. And who wrote the script? The mind of God. Why? To display His glory to the universe. What is our play? You know, when you're reading down the credits... Okay? Brother, you understand. We're reading down the credits. Do we have the Lord Jehovah as a player? And he's not acting. He's doing. He's performing. Who's purposed all things according to his own will. You're starting to read down. You don't get very far. And you see Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Do you know what's right below him? You and me, the sons of God. It's a real drama. Is there real death involved? Eternal torment in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever with the devil and his angels. Is there a happy ending? Glorified in the presence of God at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. Is there love? Is there hate? Is there an adversary? The gospel crushes all efforts of men to ever even think about anything even close. The best drama ever given to Hollywood is nothing in comparison to this. The book of Esther is nothing in comparison to this. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how to preach it to you. All I can do is read it and try to give a little bit of the sense of the words. It's overwhelming. It's wonderful. It's precious. It should change our lives. It should excite us every day, every moment of every day, and every moment of every night. Here come the credits. The Lord Jehovah. His Son, Jesus Christ. Jim Cutler. Son of God. Well, you're, you're below me, but you know. But you know what? We're all going to be, we're all equal. We're all the sons of God. It doesn't matter. He's my good brother. I can say things like that and get away with it sometimes. We're, we're, all, we're all brethren. The women are brethren. There's no marriage in heaven. There's no male or female in heaven. We're all brethren. The age differences are all gone. We're all brethren in heaven. Brethren of the Lord Jesus. Right. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. 
He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Oh, yes, he has. Do you know what the Arminian scheme is? We have wisely and prudently availed ourselves of an offer in Christ. Unbelievable. Their pitiful little, their pitiful little drama. Can we call their Jesus a hero? He's a failure in 98% of those he died for. What do we call their God's love? It tortures 98% of the people he loved in hell forever. Why did he create them? We know why he created men that end up in hell. For the praise of his glory and wrath. Because he's a holy and just God. Wherein he hath abounded toward us. Can you think of ways in which God's wisdom and prudence abound in saving men? How about determining all these things before Genesis 1.1? Is that pretty wise and creative and prudent? And bringing about quite an invention of things? Remember witty inventions? What's a witty invention? Earth. What's another witty invention? The Garden of Eden. What's another witty invention? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's another witty invention? The tree of life. What's another witty invention? The devil. What's another witty invention? A perfect world with a perfect wife. Are you, are you with me? Yeah. This is the gospel. Yeah. Think of some more examples of his abounding wisdom and prudence. How does he satisfy his justice while displaying his wrath and power? He's got to display his wrath and power against sin. So it pleased the Lord to bruise his only begotten son. Save, save men, but save no angels? Hello? The angels are higher than men. They desire to look into the things that belong to our salvation. Do you know that the angels are standing around in this room right now? They know that the truth is being preached. They already understand it, that they were bypassed, and their fallen comrades, the smoke of their torment, will ascend up into heaven forever and ever. But we are the sons of God. They understand. They desire to look into these things. Do you desire to look into them? They desire to look into them. We should love these things. Send His Son? God didn't have a son. Send His Son? What a drama. I hath not seen nor ear heard. Are you kidding? A virgin birth? A virgin birth. That's a contradiction of terms. A scam trial resulting in his death? A crucifixion death? Couldn't it have been a guillotine? A bullet? Natural causes? A crucifixion death on a tree? Resurrection from the dead? Remember, when Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and raised the knife and he was going to kill Isaac, do you know what the thought process was in his head? Was it God is cruel? No. Was it God's word isn't true? No, it was God's word is true. This son is my seed. I'm going to kill him, and God's going to raise him back to life. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because the New Testament helps you understand the Old Testament by telling you that's what he was thinking in Hebrews chapter 11, that God could raise him from the dead. Now here's God. I'm going to send my son to die for them. How do I get my beloved son back? I'll raise him from the dead. How about a great high priest that can relate to us? Can God relate to your temptations? Never. Wait a minute. Okay. Sorry. 
Can God relate to your temptations? No. Does Jesus Christ relate to your temptations? Yes. And who is sitting at the right hand of God all the time, interceding for us? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is tempted in all points like as we are. How about adoption? Isn't that pretty wild? His, His wisdom and His prudence has abounded to us. How about letting them inherit the universe? You know, here's some earthly man and his wife. I'm going to adopt this little baby from a poor country. I'm going to give them their own bedroom and an inner spring mattress. And they're going to eat three squares a day and have lots of orange juice and Fruit Loops. You know, and I'm just going to pour out good things on them. And I meant good things when I said orange juice and Fruit Loops with quotation marks around them. But here is God. I will create these men that will sin against me and be my enemies, I will adopt them and give them an estate of the universe, joint heirs with my son. Not only did God abound in wisdom and prudence, but he's given it to us. Salvation was full of God's wisdom and prudence, but he's revealed it to us so that we can hear, see, understand, and know the things that are freely given to us of God. Isn't that what it said in 1 Corinthians 2? Revelation is everything to us. We don't care about rationalization. We don't care about reason. We don't care about relationships on earth. We don't care about any of those R's. The R that we care about is revelation. The only way that we can know these things is not to rationalize them or to reason about them. It's to believe the revelation God's given to us of them. And it is incontrovertibly great. Great is the mystery of godliness. But before that it says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. Without controversy, that is one incredible drama that you've had conveyed to you by the gospel. This is what Ephesians 1, verse 8 is talking about, that in His grace, not only did He elect us, not only did He predestinate us, not only will He adopt us, but He has told us about these things. Verses 8 and 9 are the fact that He told us. You know, we could be wandering through this world without knowing these things. But look what it says in verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. It is all wrapped up in God, but he chose to reveal it to us. Even though it's his own pleasure, even though it's his own purpose, even though it's his will in himself, he's chosen to reveal it to us so that we can know what he was thinking, why he was thinking, and where it all came from. For the display of his glorious grace, He's chosen you and me. It is unbelievable. But we believe it by revelation. It's incomprehensible. But we believe it because of an infinite mind who is abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He's abounded toward us in these things. Much more should be said. Much more can be said. Much more will be said. That is enough for right now so that we can sing about His glorious grace to us before we come to His table and remember 
the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ that put the drama into force. Without the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great wisdom and prudence of God does not go into force. It all depends upon the death of the testator. And the testator died in his son, Jesus Christ. It's in force. It's been in force for 2,000 years from our weak standpoint. It's been in force from eternity in God's standpoint because God can say those things which be not as though they were done. Because it's His covenant. And when God makes a covenant, He will perform all of His purposes and pleasure. So He's always seen us in Christ. But now we know we're in Christ. We know when it happened because it said in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And then we had to come into time. And then He regenerated us. And then He sent feet to preach to us the gospel. And we we counted it foolishness at one point in our lives. But then something happened to us called being born again. And it wasn't foolishness to us. We loved it. Let us sing about the Lord's death.